going. Uh, why don't you open your Bibles up, uh, keep them open there to James uh, chapter 4. Uh, we are actually amazingly getting toward wrapping up this series in James. I think we've got about four or five weeks left in the series. And I don't know about you, but James has been really good for me. Have you guys found this series to be helpful? Uh, there, there's a way that James, over and over in this letter, just keeps pinning us against the wall. He, he doesn't let us kind of escape what it really means for us to live a life of genuine faith, to live out this, this genuine Christianity, right? James isn't interested in us just giving lip service to Jesus. He wants us to follow him, to obey him in this wholehearted way. And so James keeps coming back to the ways that genuine faith really gets played out in these practical street-level areas of, of our life. And one of the things that we see over and over as we walk through James is that over and over again, James reminds us that if our faith is going to touch down on the street levels of our life, it's going to inevitably have to, have to be shown, have to be, has to be played out in relationship with other people. Like James isn't interested in just some type of private piety or just a personal relationship with Jesus. He, he's pressing us to let our faith be played out in every human relationship that we have. And you see that right from the first chapter of this letter, right? Think, think back on this series. What does James say in chapter 1? And genuine faith, genuine Christianity inevitably cares for people that are poor and that are marginalized. Right? Chapter 2, what does James say? He wants to see faith visible in this community that's marked by mercy rather than partiality. In chapter 3, right, genuine faith gets worked out by a community that uses its tongue, uses its words to give life rather than bring death. And Josh just preached on this last week at the end of chapter 3, right? Genuine faith is marked by this wisdom that gets played out in a peacemaking community, a, a community of life and flourishing and peace. And so in James's mind, Real faith always gets worked out and gets worked into these functional, ground-level, relational rhythms of our life. And so, church, if, if our faith is getting worked out in any way in relationship with other people, like if, if faith is getting displayed in community for us, it will inevitably have to get worked out in our life in the midst of and through conflict. That's an inevitability, if we're around people. And conflict is one of the most basic realities of our human existence, isn't it? Like all of us in everyday life have experienced some type of conflict. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've experienced conflict. And from simply having a, a small spat with a longtime friend to having family dysfunction and conflict in an ongoing way, all, all the way to this far end of kind of relationship damaging, relationship destroying blow-ups, all of us have experienced conflict this year, right? this month, maybe, maybe even this week, maybe even on the drive to church this morning, a common spot. We've all experienced and walked through some type of conflict because conflict is a part of life in this world for us, isn't it? But it wasn't always that way, was it? Think back with me. God, God 
God created us as humans to experience this flourishing in relationship, in community. We turn back to the beginning of Genesis in the creation story, and, and what is it that we see? We see human beings living in unity, living in harmony, living in this this perfect relationship with God and with one another, living in perfect peace. In what the Bible calls in Hebrew, shalom, this perfect flourishing. But in Genesis 3, what happens? Sin, right, comes into the world and shatters that peace on every level. And we see that relational fracture right away. I mean, if you know the story, what is it that that appears first in this Genesis 4 world? Cain, out of jealousy and anger, murders his brother Abel. Conflict, right out of the gate. At its core, conflict reveals that there is something deeply flawed about us. There's something that's, that's gone wrong with the world, and there's something that's gone wrong with us at the most basic level. Now, Enter into that flawed moment, James chapter 4, right? James 4 looks at this Genesis, post-Genesis 3 mess. And through this chapter, James actually diagnoses our messed up heart condition. He starts to look under the surface at what's going on in our hearts and examine this mess internally through the case study of conflict. He's trying to identify our deepest issues as human beings and and look at them through the lens of conflict. And James here, like a good doctor, is going to diagnose some of our biggest issues and offer us a a cure for them. Now, James' goal here, friends, is that that genuine faith would actually get worked out in all of us in such a way that, that as Christians, our lives would just be marked by healthy relationships. Not perfect relationships that, 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 that won't actually come until Jesus returns, but James wants us to be marked by healthy relationships, relationships that are characterized by the kind of godly wisdom and peacemaking that Josh preached on last week, right? Ultimately, James wants relationships that actually point back to, that echo back to Genesis 2, to this shalom that we experienced as humans in the garden, and relationships that point forward to the restoration of that shalom when Jesus returns. That's what James is after. And so through this chapter, James is going to show us the way there. He's going to help us navigate how to get there. And he does that by doing three things. By asking a question about conflict, unpacking its cause, and then by offering us, giving us the cure. And so I just want to walk through the passage really simply that way, that those three points will kind of give us some structure, some rails to run on. Number one, the question. Number two, the cause. Number three, the cure. So the question, the cause, the cure. You ready? Let's dive in together to James 4. Number one, the question. Look with me here at verse 1. James starts off with this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, I don't think that there's a more relevant, more practical question for us to ask. Like, as a parent, I I probably ask this question several times a day. If you are a parent with multiple children, you know this question, right? I mean, think of this example. You, You send your kids to get ready for bed, brush their teeth, 
wash their face, put their pajamas on, and suddenly World War III erupts upstairs. What do you do? Well, here's what I do. I, I channel James. I march up those stairs, I burst open the door, and I ask the question, what is going on here? Why are you arguing? What are you arguing about? I mean, that's James's question, isn't it? What causes quarrels and fights among you? What's at the root of the conflict? James is like a good doctor, right? He's trying to get underneath this presenting issue that he sees. And what he's asking is this, how is it that siblings can go from playing happily together to being at each other's throats like that? How is it that neighbors can stop talking to one another? Now, how is it that that co-workers can slander each other? That communities can crumble, that churches can split, that countries can go to war? Now, how is it that that happens? What's at the bottom of those conflicts? Why, why do those things happen? How, how is it that the simple process of loading luggage into a car can set a husband and wife at odds with one another through the rest of their vacation? Asking for a friend. I have a, a handful of things that I obsess over in life, uh, but one of them is the perfectly packed car for a road trip. There is an art and science, I think, to packing a vehicle. Guys, you feel me here? right, Ladies, if you don't understand a man's obsession with maximizing every square inch of space in a vehicle, it's, it's, a, real, it's a real thing. It's an obsession. So last year, uh, we were on a trip out in Colorado, and uh, Josh and Emily were there, although you weren't there in this particular moment, I don't think. Um, and, and on this particular day, I was especially passionate about packing the vehicle perfectly. And we had a lot of luggage. I had taken my time to get everything just right. I thought through this process of what things were going to look like, what, what I needed to do. And I have to say, it was like I just worked magic in that moment. I mean, it, it, other than me doing it, it probably was not humanly possible to arrange the vehicle uh, so neatly and tidily and tightly. I mean, it, this was a masterpiece. It was a work of engineering brilliance. And I wanted that masterpiece to be admired, to be honored. So you can imagine how grateful and how thankful I was when my beautiful wife, Ellie, told me her opinion on how things should be packed how things should be arranged. I was so glad in that moment to have the gift of a helper given by the Lord for my good. No, I was irritated, right? I was annoyed. I was frustrated. I got, I, I got hard-headed. I got stubborn. I got angry. I mean, if you were to ask me in that moment, James's question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? If, if you were to ask my daughters in that moment when dad bursts into the door and says, why are there quarrels and fights going on among you? What's going on here? What would the answer be? What would, what would most of us usually say? If you were to kind of go back in time to your last moment of conflict and someone asks you, why are you arguing? Why are you impatient? Why are you irritated? Why are you angry? Where is it that we normally look? And what's our tendency? What's our gut response? It's to look outside of us, isn't it? It's to look out here. Our default setting is to, to look to people 
and look to circumstances as the cause of the conflict that we're having. If that person wasn't in my life, if, if this circumstance wasn't like it is, if it was different, if, if he hadn't have done that, or if she hadn't have said that, if things weren't this way, I wouldn't be having this issue. And here's the question that James asked, what causes quarrels and fights? And here's our answer most of the time, something out there. But James answers this question in a radically different way. You heard it when we read this passage. And this, this leads us into point number two here, the cause. What does James say is the cause? The cause, point two, he says, isn't out there. It's actually in here. It's actually in here. Verse 1 again, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The issue, James says, isn't this visible conflict out here. It's this invisible conflict internally within us on a heart level. This is incredibly profound. We, we can easily skip over this because we get used to hearing. If you've read James a couple times, maybe you pass over. But what James is saying is incredibly profound. He's saying that, that the reason that there is conflict in your life, the reason for almost every one of us that, that perfect, perfect relational peace doesn't exist for any one of us is that there's a battle raging inside of you around what James calls your passions or your desires, there's this, there's this war going on over what you want, over what you think is going to bring you satisfaction, and how you're actually going to get there, how you're going to get that satisfaction. Do you realize how insightful this is, what James is saying? All, all of the self-help books in, the, in that section at Barnes & Noble don't have this kind of honest wisdom about our own spiritual condition, our own issues. And James is saying that the issue in our lives, what causes conflict and strife of all kinds, what causes brokenness, the reason we have issues with people isn't our circumstances, it's not the church that we're in, it's not our marriage, it's not our kids, it's not this relationship or that relationship. The problem is us. There's a war going on internally. It's this disorder inside of us that's the issue. James, in the next verse here, starts to kind of play out what that disorder actually looks like on the ground functionally in our lives. Look at, look at verse 2 with me if you've got your Bibles here, here in front of you. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And the problem, James says, the cause of our conflict is that you, you are functionally looking at people as either an object for your own fulfillment or as an obstacle to that fulfillment. You're looking at people either as an object, a conduit for your own fulfillment, or an obstacle in the way of your own fulfillment. Church, I want, I want to just think through together theologically that this mess of our hearts God created us, right? If you think back to the purpose God had in creation, why did God create us? He created us to love and to worship and to serve and to find our fulfillment, to find our joy in Him, right? 
And why did God create this, this human community, this, this relationship between husband and wife, this, this microcosm of all human community? God created these human relationships to, to love and to serve one another and press one another to ultimately find true satisfaction and joy in God, right? But since Genesis 3, here's what we do. We, we flip that around. And instead of looking to God, the, our Creator, our Father, to actually meet our needs, to fulfill our desires, what do we look to? We look to His creation. And this is Romans 1. We start looking to circumstances and to people to satisfy these, these deepest desires within us. In other words, the reason that conflict happens is that instead of looking to God, to fulfill your needs and your desires instead of looking to Him to provide for you, instead of looking to Him for your, your ultimate satisfaction, you're looking across the street or across the cubicle. You're looking into the boardroom. You're looking into the bedroom. You're looking all kinds of places besides God for satisfaction. You're looking to these created things to give you what they ultimately never can. And people can never bear the weight of that expectation. They weren't meant to. And so when those circumstances and when those people don't give you what you want or they, they get in the way of what you want, what happens? You get bitter. You get angry. You get irritated. And depending on your internal makeup, you either withdraw or you lash out in anger. So what happens to us? And just use myself for a moment because it's easiest because um, I'm such a mess when it comes to these things too. Uh, hopefully this is helpful as we, we build this out. I mean, I, I was thinking about myself this week. Why is it for me that I so often get angry and frustrated with my kids? Is it, I, is it that I have some type of righteous anger toward their sin and, and I'm just righteously frustrated? Not at all. <laughs> Their common sin issues get in the way of my comfort, my convenience, the way that I want to spend my time. I desire and don't have because of this obstacle. And so what happens? I can kill with even a glance toward my kids, with the words that come out of my mouth. Why do I get defensive and stubborn with my wife? It's because ultimately, what am, I, what am I looking for from her, right? I'm looking for respect and honor and affirmation, all good things. But if I'm ultimately looking to her to, to fulfill all of those for me, what happens when I don't get it? I take it out on her. I covet but cannot obtain, so I fight and quarrel. Like, this is all of us. We all struggle with this, this mess and we can be so selfish, right? Instead of loving and serving and giving toward others, we, we want them to give to us. And people can so easily become these objects, these conduits that we either use for self-gratification, for self-fulfillment, or they become obstacles in the way of what we think we want. And either way, when it doesn't work out, what does it cause? It causes conflict. Because we're trying to look horizontally for, for what actually can only come vertically, we're looking to this world to give us what only God actually can. 
Now, James here is going to keep peeling back these layers of our disorder. So stick with me here. This is, we're getting worked over by a good doctor here. And, and so what James says next is that this selfishness in relationship, this heart disorder actually shows itself in our relationship with God as well, primarily seen in our prayer life. We start to become people who are either self-reliant or just self-absorbed. And so look with me at verse 2. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now again, if we go back to creation, we have this creator, this father, this God who wants to provide all of our needs for us. Who's happy to lavish himself to give us joy and satisfaction. That's what he's created us for. right? But what do we do? We think we can do life on our own. We try to manage on our own. We try to do things in our own strength. We try to take care of ourselves on our own. And it shows itself in our lives in a prayerlessness. Start to disconnect from real relationship with God. Now think about that on a worldly level with me for a, a second. There is no one more prone to relational dysfunction than a person who feels like they constantly have to look out for themselves. It's a recipe for dysfunction in relationships. A a person who feels like they have to be completely self-sufficient because no one else is going to look out for them. That just starts to create relational fracture. A person like that becomes either unhealthy and needy or they start to withdraw altogether from relationship. And so this self-sufficiency just breeds relational fracture. And if that doesn't happen, we can become people who just see God as another means to an end. Look at what James says. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We start to treat God like a vending machine. And we put in our money and we expect certain things to come out for us. How often, think about your own prayer life, you just come to God expecting Him to give what you want. Our, our prayer life, how we come to God, is such a, such a diagnostic tool for what's actually going on inside of our hearts. It shows us what our relationship with Him looks like. I mean, it, it's just a dead giveaway to us uh, of whether we've got self-reliance or self-absorption going on internally within us. And church, can we, can we just let this sit on us for a moment? Can we, can we just let the weight of what, what James is saying press into us? We, I think there's times when we can be overly introspective in life, but I think when we come to passages like this that, that are just provoking for what's our internal condition, we need, we need to let it work into us. So think about your own life. Where's your life marked by quarrels and fights? Where do you, where do you see a pattern? Where, where do you and your spouse just have argument number three that's like a templated argument that you keep falling into that rut over and over and over again? Take a look because there's much more going on under the surface than we tend to think. Well, finally, here's how ugly all of this is. Here's, here's what James tells us. Here's how deep the the rabbit hole of our own dysfunction and disorder goes. Verse 4, James says, you adulterous people. Literally, you adulteresses. 
Church, to, to live this way, looking, looking out horizontally away from us to people, to a spouse or an employer or parents or friends, looking at creation rather than the Creator to ultimately meet your needs, to ultimately fulfill you, to ultimately satisfy you, that, James says, is spiritual adultery. Now at its core, what is Adultery. I think Paul Tripp gives a helpful definition here. Here's how he defines it. He says adultery is ultimately when you give to one the love that you've promised to another. When you give to one the love that you have promised to another. Now, think about this biblically. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, as uh, the, the Bible describes the relationship between God and His people in this covenantal marital language, right? Our hearts as God's people have been knit to Him. They've been joined to Him. Our, our love is meant for Him. And especially in the Old Testament, as you see the journey of God's people chasing after the idols of the nations, running away from God and trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in worshiping all kinds of other stuff on a horizontal level, what are they ultimately doing? They're giving this love promised and pledged to God to everything else around them. And so Scripture over and over as you read the Old Testament uses this language of adultery to define what's going on with God's people, to describe Israel's unfaithfulness. And James is saying here, that's us. That's us. And we're no different from Israel. We've been joined to God by faith through His Son. And when we, when we spurn Him, and we start looking to other people and other things to satisfy our passions, we're, we're in essence embracing other lovers. When we knit ourselves in friendship, in relationship to the world like that, we actually end up putting ourselves at enmity with God. This is what James says next. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friendship in the ancient world it was, wasn't like friendship is in our world now, right? We live in a world where with a click of the mouse, a click of your trackpad, a click on your phone, you can be friends with practically anyone the world over, right? A billion people at your fingertips. And so friendship for us really comes with no strings attached. There's no tie to many of the people that we would say are our friends on Facebook. But in the ancient world, things looked a whole lot different. Friendship inherently was this deep connection, right? Friendship with another person in the ancient world meant tying your identity, tying your lot, tying your hopes, tying your dreams, knitting those things to another person. So here's what James is saying. He's saying to us, church, if you tie yourself to the world, if you knit yourself to the way that the world thinks, to the world's values and the world's outlook, if you knit your future and your hope and your satisfaction, if you join all of those things to the way the world thinks, you actually are putting yourself in conflict with God. I mean, these are hard words. They're hard words. 
And so the ultimate cause of conflict is a whole lot deeper than we thought, right? We look at road rage and we think, well, that guy just cut me off. Well, there's way more going on in the surf, under the surface for all of us in every conflict than just what we see on the surface. There's a spiritual adultery that is present in our hearts. And so the reason that we have conflict isn't, isn't just that we don't love others enough, it's that we actually don't love God enough. What a mess we are, right? I feel like so often, actually, as we've been through James, that's where I end up. We are so messed up. We're so needy of God's grace. And so, what do we do? Well, notice here that James doesn't just end with this terrible warning. He starts to offer us some glimmers of hope, beginning at the end of verse 5. Keep reading with me. He says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Now, that verse is notoriously difficult to translate. It's actually one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to translate. And so if you have a, 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 a NIV or an NLT or another version in the ESV, yours might read a little bit differently. However, no matter how you translate it, actually, the point stands the same, is that God cares about us. He's so jealous over us. He cares about us too much to let us just keep going our own way. God will hem us in and hem us around until He brings us into a wholehearted obedience to Him. And that starts to give us some hope, doesn't it? God is so good and gracious to us that He actually offers us a cure for this disorder of our hearts. And so this is the last point, point three, the cure, the cure. What do we need for this disordered, jacked up, messy state that all of our hearts can be in? Well, here's what modern psychology will tell you. I was uh, actually looking at some different psychology publications online this week, just on the issue of conflict. What do they say about uh, how we grow to be people that actually live in healthy relationships with one another? Well, uh, to summarize several different articles, the main thing that we need to be a people marked by healthy relationships are the right skills. If you just have the right skills, like you know what you're doing wrong in communication, you become a clearer communicator, you become a better listener, if you just learn those skills, get educated enough, you'll change and your relationships will change. That's modern psychology. Now, I'm not denying that there is a value to learning skills on some level, but do you think the problems that James is identifying in James 4 will be solved by a skill set that you learn? No, James is saying our need is so much deeper than that. And so here's what James says you need. You need grace. You need grace. And Praise God, that's exactly what He provides. Look at verse 6. But He gives more grace. How hopeful, how beautiful is that line in the midst of this mess. But He gives more grace. I think those five words, I think James puts them here to actually open our hearts up and open our ears up to, to be able to hear all the hard things that He said to us in the first half of this chapter. 
Now let's think about grace for a moment, right? Grace is so easily one of these Christianese words that we just toss around, but what does James mean when he talks about grace? Well, grace in James's mind is more than just a divine do-over. It's more than just a cosmic second chance at life or at a relationship. Grace, as we look at it on the pages of the New Testament, is God's power dispensed through the Gospel. It's God's power poured out, dispensed, lavished on us, given to us through Jesus. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has poured out His grace. God's forgiven your past. He's promised you this unbelievable future. He's healed this cosmic conflict that exists between us and Him But even more, what does God's grace do? It promises His power at work in your life right now, in your present moment, in the midst of conflict. In the midst of conflict. Like at at the nadir, at the low point of our stupidity and our stubbornness and our mess. As these passions wage war within us, as you just stumble constantly into self-reliance and self-absorption, even as you find yourself right on the edge of spiritual adultery, what does James say? He says His grace goes deeper. His grace is more. James says God is more full of grace than you are full of sin. What a promise for us. And this kind of grace, I think, actually lets us come to a passage like James chapter 4 and admit, be honest with what a mess we are. It lets us own the issues of James chapter 4. It helps us to come to God and say, yes, like, God, I, I am so jacked up. I'm constantly looking around me at people and circumstances to to bring me ultimate joy, to bring me ultimate satisfaction. And, And I so tend to see others as obstacles to what I want or just objects that are gonna get me there. And so, Lord, I'm just I'm just stumbling my way back to you because I know that what I'm longing for can only ultimately be found in you. And the power of grace propels us back to God. Grace gets us there. These are some of the sweetest words in James. They're so simple. But He gives more grace. The cure for conflict is right here in those words. But that grace is only given to people who are willing to admit their need. That's why James says here, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And for people who are just stuck in that self-reliance and self-absorption, for people who are too proud and unwilling to, to admit their own need and their own problems, there's not a lot of help. But church, if this morning we'll get low, we'll, we'll come to God with a neediness, with a brokenness, we'll come to Him desperate and humble, He will lavishly pour out His grace toward us. And that grace, I think, as we move to the end of this passage, it it draws out 
a response from us. God's grace works in us to move us in a direction. And so what do we do with that? Well, James helps us to see what we should do with this grace we receive in the rest of this passage. So read these last couple of verses with me. Here's here's how grace works in us to transform us. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking the details of this this morning. We just don't have time for that. We could reserve a whole sermon just for these couple of verses. Um, but what I want to do through these verses is just give you a couple handholds to take with you this morning. Just, just a couple things. that if, it, if you this morning are sensing how deep the rabbit hole goes in your life, if you're looking at moments of conflict with people in your life and you're seeing how this mess has come out of you, let me give you a couple things to move with, a couple things to, to let God's grace do in you. Number one is this. Just right now, this morning, submit. Submit. I mean, God's grace triggers in us this submission. A submission where we can actually just humbly look to God and say, God, I've been living for my own kingdom for my own ways, I've wanted to be Lord over all of my stuff and all of my ways and all of my relationships. Right now, Lord, propelled by your grace, I submit to you. You're Lord and I'm not. So number one, submit yourselves this morning to God. Number two, resist. Resist. There's another agent here at work in the midst of our conflict and this disorder, this war going on within our hearts. In chapter 1, James identifies the source of temptation as our own desires. But here in chapter 4, he helps us to see that there's another party at work, right? Anywhere that you see strife, that you see internal turmoil, there's the reality that we have an enemy who opposes us. Paul puts it this way, right? What does he say? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in this present darkness. And so, brothers and sisters, as you go through your day, be aware that there is a battle going on. There's an enemy at work who wants to bring strife and derail relationships in your life. But, But listen to this. Be full of confidence going into battle because look what James says. Just a bit of resistance in this war will cause the enemy to flee. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So submit, resist. Number three, draw near. Draw near. And what does that look like? And James is not saying that God is far away from us, that God is distant, but he's reminding us that God's grace propels us to move toward a God who's waiting for us to call on him. One of my favorite pastors, Dawson uh, Dawson Trotman, once said something so great. He just said, God is so close at the word Father, we're in his presence. I mean, what grace is that? And so draw near to him and bring all of your mess, all of your junk, all of this disorder, and just come to him. Ask him, be near to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's number three. Number four, and lastly, 
repent. Repent. This is what James is getting at in these hard words that he says here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is reminding us, take some time this morning to examine your own heart. To look inside at what's really going on inside of you. And cleanse your hands, James says, church. Where, where are you using your hands, your time, your talent, your treasure? Where are those things being used to just serve you and your own desires rather than moving you toward finding ultimate satisfaction in God? Confess it. Repent from it. Turn from it. And purify your hearts. Where is it that, that internally you're chasing all kinds of other things on a horizontal level to satisfy you when only God can bring you that ultimate satisfaction? Turn from it. Be wretched and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, those kind of words don't rest very easily on us in 2019, do they? And there's a way, I think, in our day where we've maybe looked back in history and we've, we've seen the extremes of religion, the extremes of self-flagellation. I spent uh, 10 years over in Tibet where I saw people uh, going around circum- circumambulating a monastery thousands of times to gain merit. And we look at those things and we, we think, no, that's not Christianity. We just need to move on from our sin. Well, it's not. It's not, it's not Christianity, but I, I think... Sometimes, quite honestly, we don't know how to grieve our sin. We know how to feel guilty. We do that well. But we don't actually know how to grieve. And great grace, I think, brings about this, this deep grief over how deep the rabbit hole goes. This deep grief over the disorder within us. We have this tendency, right, to let moments like this kind of scuff off of us, kind of ricochet off of us, and not actually process it internally. There are times when we need to actually come to grips with the depths of what's going on within our hearts, the disorder that's there. And we need to mourn and weep and grieve it. Then here's where James ends. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Now, God so warmly, we, we say this every Sunday when we start our service, God so warmly welcomes us when we come to Him weak and needy and desperate and broken. When we come to Him admitting how ugly things are on the inside of us, he meets us with His grace in that place. And so, would you come to Him this morning? Let, let, let yourself actually examine what's going on internally and come to Him. Come to Him to receive His grace. Every relationship in your life needs that. Your marriage, your friendships, your community group, your workplace, all of these spaces need for you this morning to come to grips with where conflict comes from and find healing and renewal through the grace of God. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father, thank you for your great grace toward us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our disorder, our dysfunction internally. You come with 
unbelievable grace. You sent your own son to die for this mess and to rise again to give us a new power to walk in obedience. Lord, meet us this morning. Even as we come to the table, I pray that people here would experience your lavish grace in the midst of the depths of their disorder and dysfunction. In Jesus' name, amen.